0: Gracious Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for bringing us here all by your providence and your kind hand. Thank you for saving us and bringing us into your family by Christ through your Son. Lord, thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection. And Lord, uh, may we hope in him afresh. And Lord, out of that hope, help others with the instruction that we give and the teaching we give to help them hope as well. In you, Lord, not in anything in this life, Lord God, not anything in this world or in ourselves, but in Christ and Christ alone, Lord, we ask that you would do this in his name, amen. All right, well, my name is Brent Osterberg, if you don't know me, um, many of you were probably in track one last year, the year before, and I got to teach in that track as well. I'm one of the pastors of Living Hope Bible Church down in Mansfield. Uh, We are actually a uh, church plant from this church. Seven years ago, we went down there and started our church plant in 2015. And so we've been going now for seven years, praise the Lord. And uh, it is a a sweet, sweet family that I love being a part of. And um, I I like to call myself, though I'm one of the pastors there, I'm also one of the members. I think that pastors need to remember that we are members of Christ Church as well, uh, that we belong to the body. And so I need God's grace working through his people as well, just like they do. And so I'm I'm blessed to be able to serve in that capacity. Well, we need to get started with our topic for the evening, the imposter syndrome. It sounds like a suspense thriller movie, does it not? It sounds a little scary. It sounds a bit intimidating. The imposter syndrome, like we're dealing with someone said like a James Bond film or something. Um, it is something that sounds like it's a, it's a bit over our heads. But here's what I wanted to say about some of the terminology that's used in psychology. Some of the, the syndromes or, or um, the disorders, so to speak, we use these big words and these labels and the DSM-5 and what it calls this kind of phobia. But if you really get down to the, the bones of the problem, If you get beneath the surface and and you start to define it and say, what's going on here? And you, you identify the heart issue behind whatever syndrome or disorder you're talking about. You really see that these things have a lot in common, don't they? Um, They have a a lot in in common at the heart level, and if you can understand what's going on at the heart level, then you can understand what texts and promises and warnings and, and commands to give that person so you can point them to Christ and point them to the gospel and point them to true hope and true transformation in Christ. And so it shouldn't be to us intimidating, really. I think it sounds that way, and, and you'll see why in a moment. Why it's called the imposter syndrome, but it is something that uh, we can turn to the scriptures and say, "Hey, the scriptures are sufficient to apply to this as well." We believe that the the word of God is sufficient for us as we seek to please the Lord in every sphere of life. And so praise Him for that. Well, let's let's start to define the imposter syndrome. So we can know what's going on here. Defining the imposter syndrome. This is a, a, it's going to be like a, a secular definition, a psychological definition I'll give you first to help you understand what uh, the world sees it as. And then we'll start to get under the hood a little bit after that. But this is more of a secular definition. It's a psychological occurrence, a psychologist says. In which an individual doubts their skills, talents, or accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. So, this person deals with ongoing anxiety about not being seen as enough, especially professionally. It doesn't have to be professionally. But most often, when it comes to a person's occupation or their career, uh, being exposed as not qualified to have that position, to have that job, even though there's evidence that shows that actually that's not true. They do have qualifications most of the time, but uh, they don't believe them. They, they see things unreasonably. I like this. Uh, John Piper has an Ask Pastor John podcast on this very uh, issue, imposter syndrome, and I like what he says about this. He he helps us understand the nature of it. He calls it a kind of professional anorexia, it could be, like I said, it didn't have to be professional. It could be with a certain position that you have, or some um, service that you're engaged in, or or maybe you 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 are in a certain place among other peers, and uh, you were given that place of honor or that position. But often it's professional. And so what he means by a kind of professional an- anorexia is this: he says, with anorexia. Uh, A 90-pound, 25-year-old woman stands in front of a mirror and sees an overweight woman. With the imposter syndrome, a competent, successful, responsible, helpful person stands in front of the mirror and sees an incompetent, irresponsible, unhelpful, fraudulent employee. So you can see how uh, there is that unreasonable perspective, a distorting of reality that goes along with this persistent anxiety that the person is experiencing. There's a testimony that uh, I read uh, a man who actually works for Wycliffe Bible translators and he's been serving in his capacity for many, many years. But he says this regarding his struggle with this experience. He says, I'm in my sixties. I've got a master's in a doctorate in theology and years of experience, but I still suffer from imposter syndrome. I fear that one day the grown ups will come around and tell me to stop doing what i 'm doing and I have, I have this I have this, this anticipation that if we started to talk to people that I think there are a lot more people than we realize that feel this way and have these kinds of uh, anxieties beneath the surface. Like this, this man who is very candid in this blog post talking about his own experience. Though he has multiple degrees and though he has years and years of experience, he thinks someone's going to come around and say, actually, you shouldn't be here. It doesn't add up. You haven't been honest about who you really are and what you've done or haven't done in this case. A person with this experience says things like this. I don't belong here. Everyone else is significantly more qualified. There's a lot of comparison when it comes to this experience. Looking around at everybody else, and you see their giftedness, you see their ability, you see their skills, and you look back at yourself and say, no, I'm so, so far behind. Or they say or think things like this, I got this job by pure luck. I didn't earn my way here. I didn't do enough. I, I, I didn't work from the ground up like so many other people. And I hear their stories. This is pure luck that I got this job in the first place. Or they might say, the things I've accomplished really don't amount to anything. I don't deserve this position. They badly want to feel like they do deserve it based on their credentials or their job skills. Or they might think, it's only a matter of time before the jig is up, and I'll be fired. When are the adults going to come around? When are they going to to pin me down and really show everybody that I'm not what I've been fronting in this company? That's kind of helping us define it, but we we need to go beneath the surface. Like I said, we need to unmask the imposter syndrome. We need to unmask the imposter syndrome. Now here, really, I I think when we get to the heart of the issue, it's a lust for significance. I want to matter, in other words. (laughs) I desperately want to matter. And so this person's thinking about their career. Maybe they have their dream job. Uh, they, they've they wanted to be in a position like this and they, they fear losing this position. They're, this is the ideal job and they want others to notice the fact that they are here by their own hard work or credentials or smarts, their capacity for hard work. And so they, they think a lot about uh, their dreams, I think. And this, this is something that they want to hold on to. It's not something that... Um, where where they're filling their hearts and minds with God's ambitions for them, but their own ambitions for themselves. And by the way, along with this is a focus on the temporal. We know that we're to, like Colossians 3, 1 says, to seek the things above, set our minds on things above. But when we get stuck in these kinds of Uh, patterns of thinking, then we're, we're, we're stuck in the here and now, aren't we? We're, we're stuck in, in what is temporary, what is transient. We're not thinking beyond this life, but what matters here that these people who are, um, humans as well, they're sinners as well. They're finite. They're limited as well. Um, we're kind of caught up in what they think about us or, or how we compare to them. And this job and keeping this job means everything in this moment. And so there is a focus on the temporal. And the fear, the related fear, shows us that they're looking for significance in the wrong place. Look with me at Psalm 16, if you will. I love, I love this psalm because especially when we're talking about joy and pleasure and and. What brings true satisfaction? We need to be exposed to texts like this one. Psalm 16. Look, starting with me in verse 4 in particular. David writes... The sorrows of those who run after another God, little g, shall multiply. Isn't that interesting? You run after another God, um, an idol, that which you are worshiping, that which um, you are ascribing ultimate value to in any given moment, as you are pursuing that God, here's the rub your sorrows are going to multiply. As you seek satisfaction in something else besides God, the one who made you for his glory and he saved you for his glory, then you are going to, yes, feel this apprehension that people who experience this feel. Feel this anxiety. Feel this emptiness and a constant feeling of being on edge that someone's going to discover the real you. Because you're looking for your satisfaction in being qualified or feeling qualified so that they might be qualified, but they don't feel that way. And they want to feel that way. So they're looking for their satisfaction there and their sorrows multiply. But look with what, as we go through the text of scripture, we go down to verse 11 and we know this verse. Well, David praying to God says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David shows us a contrast, doesn't he? Where we find satisfaction is not in anything that we can find here in this life, but in the one who has made us and saved us, the one in whom there is unlimited joy in his presence. When we think about the heart of those who struggle with an imposter perspective um, and the lust for significance that they have, we need to be confronted as well with with verses like Luke 9.24. Look with me there. Luke 9.24. Verse 23 is well known that comes right before it. Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, this, I think, is important and probably one we don't spend as much time talking about in comparison to verse 23. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. As we come to Christ, if we're truly going to come to Christ, then what happens is that we, we have to let go of life on our terms, right? Life on my terms. We have to say, nope, uh, I I uh, let go. I resign myself to you, Lord. I find my significance in you. I let you define who I am. I let you define what my, my purpose and my life is all about. I'm not going to trust myself for the good life. I'm not going to trust myself for eternal life or or being right in your presence or in your eyes. I'm not going to look to myself as the one um, who is to be worshipped. I'm not going to center my life on my desires. I'm going to renounce that and I'm going to find it all in you. i lose my version of life. So I can find true life, eternal life, in you, Jesus. So Jesus warns us about what it is to have life lived on our terms. I think this quote by David Weatherall, who is writing on this very topic, um, he has this, this post on org, I believe. He says this, far from humility, this is an irrational state of paranoia that causes us to think of ourselves more as we think less of ourselves. You See what we did there? It's, it's true. We, we, we can do this. We, we, we can have a version of pride that doesn't look like what is typically pride. We typically think of pride as the braggadocious person who is flaunting his or her accomplishments in front of everybody um, who is demanding the room every time he walks into it, right who is always talking about um what what his kids did that were so awesome all the time and, and he's he's showing pictures of his his like luxury vacation on Facebook, and we think that's pride, but pride is also. Thinking of ourselves less, like thinking less of ourselves. And, and by that, we, we mean somebody who's engaging in self-pity. Self-pity is just another manifestation of pride, isn't it? Because we're thinking of ourselves as we are pitying ourselves. And true humility is not in pitying ourselves, but true humility is casting our minds and our in our sight, our spiritual sight upon the Lord and forgetting about ourselves in the light of his glory. And so we can, by thinking about how we compare to others and so fearful that we don't add up and, and we haven't reached that certain, that certain place of prominence, we can end up engaging in much pride. And it's very dangerous. I think it's actually more dangerous, that kind of pride, because other people don't see it as pride. They pity you too. You pity yourself and people come alongside and say, I'm so sorry. But... You know what? It's not that bad. You're not as bad as you think you are. There's that kind of um, false comfort that is given. And people don't see it as pride, and therefore they don't ask hard questions. Uh, they don't point you to the Lord the way that they ought to be pointing you to the Lord because they see it as more of a, you know, like Eeyore, right? Oh, come here. Hmm. Let me pat your head. Sadly, I know what this is like personally, but the imposter perspective is, is one in which, uh, people appear to be humble, but are actually engaging in pride. What else? How do we unmask the imposter syndrome? The imposter perspective is characterized by an unreasonably negative assessment of one's performance. The related fear distorts reality. So as we said in the earlier definitions, it's this this kind of professional um, anorexia. The person does have qualifications. The person um, has met certain goals, has those skills, but they don't see them. They don't see those skills in the proper light. They're being unreasonable. And I think a good prayer for us to pray as Christians would would be to pray, Lord, help me to um, live today with a reasonable faith. Help me see things the way you see things. And so think about this. It, this, this is not a way for us to say, um, if we look at things from God's perspective, um, or if we're reasonable, then yes, of course, we will see all the wonderful things that I have done. That's not what it is. But it's it's like this. This this is what we need eyes to see when we're dealing with uh, an imposter perspective. We need to think like James chapter 1, verse 17. We need to have verses like this in our repertoire. This is important because it's not about what we have done. It's not about what we are doing. It's not about what we have accomplished. That's not what is going to help us in the midst of these poisonous thoughts. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If we have accomplished anything, it's a gift from the Lord. If we have certain skills, it's a gift from the Lord. If we have been given an opportunity, a job, a career, it's from the Lord. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. And so if someone is looking in the professional mirror, so to speak, and all they see is not adding up, not being as good or as qualified as the people around them, then they're denying what God has done in their lives. And so it's it's a denial of grace. It's a denial of God's goodness, And that's the problem here. There's a tendency to look past the truth that God has been good to this person, giving strengths, abilities, and success with various endeavors. The focus remains on the person, so the person is stuck in fear. As long as we keep focusing on self, we'll be stuck in sorrow. We'll be stuck in um, anxiety. We'll be stuck in anger as long as we're focusing on ourselves. And then comparing ourselves to other people. That, that helps to, to st- steal our perspective away from the Lord where it ought to be, where we, look, where we ought to be looking to find our joy and our satisfaction. And by the way, um, maybe you've experienced this, but it, at least in my circles, at least in my circles, um, since I've come to faith, I've been in more conservative, reformed circles, and there's not a lot of talk about spiritual warfare. You have you encountered this? Maybe there's not as much talk about Satan and demons and things like that. Perhaps it's because we, we don't want to go overboard like certain parts of evangelicalism have, and we we don't want the pendulum to sing way over here. So we're, we're seeing like, we're blaming Satan for everything. We're seeing him around every bush. Maybe that's why. And so we've reacted to that. So we don't talk about spiritual warfare very much. But when we're talking about biblical counseling and people's problems, I don't think we should discount that reality. Let's turn to Ephesians six. In our church, um, we have been um, another pastor myself. I, I'm, a, I'm a co-pastor. There's two of us that switch the switch uh, the pulpit out every other week. But we sit we preach through the same book of the Bible, and so we've been preaching through Ephesians. It's been a wonderful journey, and uh, the last few weeks we've been in the. Um, the armor of God, part of chapter six of Ephesians, and I was reminded again how important it is to to realize that on one hand we we shouldn't be afraid of Satan, but neither should we pretend like he's not a threat. Right? That's the balance. Look at me at, starting in verse eleven. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, the word schemes is a word that has with it the idea that the devil is strategic, that he is cunning, that he is crafty, and how he seeks to tempt us and lead us astray. I mean, just look at, uh, C.S. Lewis's screw tape, screw tape letters. He, he gets this. He's trying to help us understand that, that Satan is crafty in writing that book. And he goes on to say in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our enemy is, is not one that we can see, right? He's an unseen enemy. He and his, his army, But against the rulers, he says, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our our enemy is unseen. And like one author says, he has an empire of darkness at his disposal. I praise the Lord for the fact that he has been defeated at Calvary, that God has triumphed over him over the demons, through Christ on the cross. And so um, we are in between that that time whenever he was defeated at the cross and when he will finally be thrown into the lake of fire in the future, but we're in that that uh, middle stage. But he's not giving up his fight, is he? He's not giving up his fight. And in fact, if you go to Revelation, it says that um, um, he knows his days are short. <laughs> I think it's in chapter 12 of Revelation. He knows his days are short, so so he is filled with wrath. He doesn't give up the fight. He, isn't, he doesn't wave the white flag. And so we need to remember this as we're helping people when it comes to biblical counseling. And I think one of the ways that Satan works so craftily is that he tempts toward pride with what looks like humility, like we talked about earlier. And so we need to teach. It would be helpful for you as you're helping your counselees to teach through the armor of God. What's going on here? How do we put on the armor of God? What, what, uh, what is prayer? Do? How, do how does prayer play play an integral role in our fight in our stand against Satan? So that's just a, kind of a sidebar there, but I think that's important because uh, he is so crafty. He is a prowling lion. First Peter says something else that the imposter perspective forgets: is the sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God, and the career path of every individual. Any person who's in any job, God planned it that way, right? He decreed that it would be so. He ordained that that person would be in that position at that time. And that doesn't mean that people don't have uh, actual skills. They do. But God is superintending everything according to his divine purpose. And so that includes... The job that I have. The job that you have. The positions you have. The places uh, of uh, maybe honor that you have. God put you there according to his sovereign plan. Look at Acts 17 with me. Acts 17. This is the part of Acts where we see Paul in Athens. He's addressing the Areopagus. These pagan philosopher types. And he says this starting in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything comes from him. All, all the gifts, all, all of the positions, all the, the careers, right? And so we need to remember his sovereignty. We need to remember that it's not because of a person ultimately getting to that position through their hard work or their skills or their giftedness that they got there. It's because God is in control. Because of his superintendence. Now, Sorry, there's your blanks. It's not because of your personal qualifications, but because of God's sovereignty. Now, how do we counsel this? We've kind of defined it. We've unmasked it. There are other things we could say. But how do we counsel it? This says Ephesians 6.23. I mean Romans 6.23. I'm preaching in Ephesians 6 right now, so I think that's why I put that there. I looked at my notes later, and I was like, I already turned it in, sorry. Romans 6.23, we know this one, right? The wages of sin is death. What we deserve, right, what we should get paid, so to speak, for our sin is death. That's actually what we've earned. We're thinking about earning things. What we actually earn is God's judgment, right? His punishment. That's what we all deserve, no matter who you're talking about. The most successful person in your company, the CEO, the wealthiest person who has had more secular materialistic success than anybody else in the whole entire world, that person deserves God's judgment because of their sin. They that's what they have earned. Let's start there, right? And you think, oh, wow, th- th- are you really going to do that with, with somebody who is is talking about how bad they think they are and they're seeing themselves in a really, really negative light? They're not seeing the things that other people see. Um, wouldn't you go about it a different way? Why would you break it, break it down like that and put such a heavy burden on them in that regard? You have to start there, don't you? You have to start there to help them understand grace, to help them understand what God has given show them what they deserve and what everybody else deserves. And then that will free them up won't it. It'll free them up to be grateful. See, this is true of everyone. You, everyone else you work with. The fact that we all have jobs at all is only due to the love of God. You say, well, what about the people who, who don't, no, Jesus. They haven't trusted in Jesus. You can say, is God loving them by giving them a job too? Yes, he is. I'll show you. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, 44 and 45. We can actually start in verse 43, go back to the beginning of that context. And Jesus says, you've heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, if you love your enemies, why would that show that you are a son of God? He goes on for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So even for those who don't know Christ and are not in him, united to him by faith, by God's grace, they are loved by God. Yes. In a common grace kind of way, they have a job by his love as well. And so no one got it left to themselves. No one got it because they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. God has loved us and given us these things that we need inside this life. And that's true when it comes to, to everybody, but then the, then we have to step back and say, for those of us who are in Christ, there, there is a, a particular love, a, a an eternal love that the people who aren't in Christ don't experience, right? We experience an eternal, infinite love in Jesus. And so when we look at Romans 8, 28 and 29, for instance, we're reminded that everything, everything that we receive, everything that happens in life, every circumstance is by God's grace for our good. Romans 8 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And you've likely heard that we cannot uh, have Romans eight twenty-eight without verse 29 as well, because that defines the good for us. The good is not anything we want it to be, right? Not what we make up, but it's defined in verse 29 when we read this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that we, we we become more like Christ. So so your job, or even if you end up losing your job, everything is worked is, is used by God so that you would become more like Christ. Your your job, your difficult circumstances, all of it is tailor made for your life, so that you'll become more like Christ. And so trusting in these truths is very very helpful. But but we're, we're helped by first starting at the reality that we deserve God's judgment, and then when we start to see the love of God, the grace of God, the purpose of God in giving us what we actually experience in our employment, in our uh, occupation, our careers, then we're freed up to enjoy God and to thank God and to appreciate God more because we didn't get here by our work or our skills, but by His hand. This will help foster gratitude. Gratitude for every paycheck, Gratitude for every promotion and every week spent with your employer, every second spent with your employer. When we are grateful, self-centered fear suffocates as God is praised for his kindness. That's helpful. We want self-centered fear to suffocate, to drown in the praise of God. Again, because God made us for his glory, didn't he? He made us to reflect him. He he made us to praise him and to worship him and trust him and enjoy him and obey him. And as we do that, we forget ourselves and then fear goes away. And it's replaced with this sense of joyful gratitude because our eyes and our affections and our trust are on the one that they ought to be on. The one who made us and saved us by his grace God's kindness, and when you start to think about all of the things, not just in your job, not just in your career, but with your family, where you live, your your blessings and your trials, you step back and you say, wow, all of it, if I'm in Christ, all of it is for my good. All of it is so that I will experience more Christ-likeness, and thus I will be more joyful, because there was no one more joyful than Christ who walked this earth. So I I find gratitude is a disposition in our hearts in which fear, bitterness, and despair cannot grow. Helpful for us. What else? How can we counsel this imposter perspective? Go me Hebrews. Chapter twelve, or Chapter four, verses twelve and thirteen. The author says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, here's the reality. Nothing in our hearts is hidden from God. He knows the darkest parts of us. And yet he loves us infinitely in Christ. And so uh, you can see how this applies to the imposter perspective, because the person that is uh, so apprehensive and anxious about being discovered as a fraud, well, they need to remember that more than anybody knows their own hearts or what's beneath the surface, God does. And he's actually the one that loves us exceedingly, loves us infinitely. And that's where their perspective needs to be placed. Um, so we don't even know ourselves as well as God, right? We don't know ourselves as well as he does. He sees us all for who we truly are. He knows the darkest parts of it. And yet we stand righteous in Christ. We're justified. We're declared righteous. We are brought into the family of God. I love what, um, what Paul says in 1 Timothy one fifteen, right? He says that um, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He understood his own heart. He understood what was going on there. He could call himself the foremost of sinners, but he says that in light of the fact that God came to save sinners. So we could be those people who who, uh, meditate on the fact that we are the foremost of sinners. And we need to understand our sins. We need to see that there's darkness there. But then we need to see that in light of the truth that we are saved by his grace through faith in Christ. We can't stay there and look at the darkness and look at the inadequacies and and the limitations and just uh, be so self-focused. We need to see that in view of all of it, God has saved us and he has brought us into his forever family. We know that Romans 8, 38 and 39 says that we can't be separated. We can't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? Um, I think that we can say that Paul's being emphatic here. Don't you think? When he says, uh, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some people will say, um... I've, I've heard people say this, that yes, I believe that we can lose our salvation because um, I, I, I know that no one can pluck me out of the Father's hand or out of the Savior's hand, but I can pluck myself out. Maybe other people can't, but I can remove myself through my unbelief. Well, it says nothing else in all of creation <laughs> will be able to separate me from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we we remain in that love And so we need to remember this, that the reality of his unlimited love in Christ is where we ought to look for our significance. It's not that you don't look for significance. We're made that way to find significance. But we don't find it in ourselves. We don't find it in our achievements. We don't find it in our qualifications. We don't find it in our job. We find significance in God's unlimited love for us in Christ. These are the things that people need to be meditating on each day. Because what, what, what someone like, like this is doing is that they're going to work and there is this, this inner dialogue where they're just looking around at the other people. They're hearing what's going on. They're, they're hearing the attaboys that other people are getting from the boss, right? They're, they're, they're seeing that someone turned in a report before they did and they're seeing that maybe they weren't to the desk as early as you know, the, the person down the row in the other cubicle. And they start to have this inner dialogue of, man, look at that person. Look at me. I didn't add up. I'm not what I think I am. I'm a fraud. Someone's just going to come and say, hey, uh, clean out your desk. We know what's up. So, this, so that's what they're doing during the day. So as a counselor, then you would come along and say, okay, we need to change the dialogue that's going on in your mind during the day. Whenever you feel like you want to start comparing yourself to the person down in the other cubicle, make sure that you take out this verse, that you pray this prayer, that you remember this attribute of God, that you see yourself in gospel lenses. Change the dialogue. Our significance is found in the one who will never leave us or forsake us Jobs, positions, and titles Can and will be taken from us But not our place in God's family Our significance needs to be In that which can never be taken away If you put yourself in in If you put your significance In something that can be taken away Then when it is taken away Then you're going to be devastated You're going to plummet into fear And anxiety and, and anger And depression And even if Um, that's not taken away, you're so worried that it's going to be taken away that you have no joy and you have no pleasure. So whether it has been taken away or it hasn't been taken away, you're still worshiping that idol and therefore you don't have the peace that God promises to those who are looking to him and find their significance in his character and his work in Christ. What's at the core of this is where we find our identity as well where we find our identity. Now, next month, we're going to talk more about this. uh, whenever we do, I do a lecture on expressive individualism. Um, it's kind of a buzzword that's been used lately in the last few years, but identity is important. Who you see yourself as is your identity wrapped up in the job. In other words, right? Who you are, how you define yourself, is it wrapped up in your place of employment, in your career? 2 Corinthians five seventeen tells us that we're a new creation in Christ, right? A new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We've been given a new identity. We don't place our identity in things that can be taken away because God has given us an identity in Christ. We're a new creature. We are a child of God. We are a servant of God. We are a worshiper of God. So I'm not the job. You're not the job. Even though I'm a pastor and, and my job is so closely related to, you know, obviously Christianity and the Bible and things like that. I am not first a pastor. I am a child of God. You're not first a school teacher. You're not first an accountant, whatever you are, you're not first at that. You're not the job. You're first a Christian. You're first an ambassador of Christ. You're first a son or daughter of God. And that's who you must see yourself as. And then you say, yeah, I, I also down here, down the line, I'm an accountant down here, down the line. I'm a nurse down here, down the line. I'm a pastor But first. I'm a child of God. So your identity matters. Where you see um, that your identity is placed. Look with me at Matthew chapter six. Something else that goes along with our search for significance. Matthew 6:26. Actually, let's back up to verse 25, Matthew six twenty-five. This whole section on anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much, uh, are you not of more value than they? (laughs) Love that. He provides for the birds. He made the birds. He provides for them. They're they're not, you know, busting it at a, you know, nine to five job and and storing up all of what they get. He provides for them. And yet, He says, you're of more value than they. And so whether or not you're deemed valuable in your line of work, you're valuable to God. He says, I value you. You're more valuable than these other aspects of my creation. Remember that. And so maybe you've done something at your job and you think, well, if, if I were really qualified, if I, if I really did a good job, then certainly the boss would have said something. Certainly the boss would have recognized it and said, hey, good job. Or I would have gotten some acknowledgement that, that I put in that much work to do that. But if, if the, the boss isn't recognizing that, maybe I'm, I'm not as uh, much of a hard worker as I thought. Maybe I'm not as skilled as I think that I am. And in that moment, when there's that temptation, you need to say, whoa, 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 hey, by grace, God values me. By grace, he says that to him, I'm important. Praise the Lord. It's because of him. Again, your focus needs to be on him and not yourself. And now, this next part is, I think pivotal to the counsel that you will give to somebody who is um, struggling with an imposter perspective. Listen to this. The answer to this problem is not to load yourself up with reasons why you're capable enough and intelligent enough. We're all fallible. We will fail. The answer is to look to the one who never fails, who never lacks and will never be exposed as a fraud. I love this Psalm 34, verse 5 text. You flip there if you'd like. The one that we need to place our hope in is the one that will never fail us. The one who will never disappoint us. Verse 4, just going ahead into the context. David says, I sought the Lord... And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, I found a study note that helped me understand what this word ashamed means, and means that you look to God and you will not be disappointed at not finding what was hoped for. You won't be ashamed. If you you put your hope in him, you look to him, then you're not going to be disappointed. Uh, there there won't come a time if you hope in God when uh, you realize, "Oh, it's all been a sham." It wasn't what he said it was. He's really not that gracious, he's really not that generous. There'll never be a time where you come to that point. You won't be ashamed for trusting him and looking to him and and loving him, you'll find that all of your hope and all of your trust (laughs) is all worth it because he really is even greater than you can imagine. And so you can can see how somebody would want to come alongside uh, a person who's struggling with imposter syndrome and say, Hey, listen, let's just go through a list of all the things that show that you're worthy. You're qualified. You're skilled enough. And and so that that person then starts looking more at themselves, which got them into that trouble in the first place. And it's just repeating the cycle. Because we're not meant to trust ourselves. We're not meant to find our fulfillment in ourselves. God made us for him. And our hearts find rest only in him. And so the opposite is true. Okay, let me show you God. All the reasons you need to be grateful for him. All the reasons why you need to look to your salvation in Christ as that which is significant for you. All the reasons why the gospel is what should should, um, marvel you today. So that you forget yourself in the glory of the one who has loved you and has saved you. Now, something else. Turn turns me to 2 Corinthians 5, 9. If you've been in... Biblical counseling, for any matter of time, you know this verse. Paul has the right perspective here. The perspective that we ought to have. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10 31 says something very similar, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why is that important for helping somebody who has an imposter perspective? Because our goal in life is always, it's always to please the Lord. And we can do that in thousands of different career paths or work opportunities. So in other words, your current position is not nearly as important as you think it is. You you have all your eggs in this basket like this. I need to keep this job. I need to see myself as significant enough to have this position. But the reality is, um, even if you lost that job, or your counselee lost that job, then you could go on to any number of careers, right? And you could still do what God made you to do, which is to please him and to glorify him. And so sometimes we need to do that with our counselees. We need to, I think we should do it early in the process. Help them see that um, if what they fear the most actually happens, right? And in this case, that the person would be discovered as a fraud and be fired. If that happened, then what? Because you don't want to put in their minds that the hope is to keep the job. Like, okay, I'm going to help you keep this job no matter what. Here's what we got to do. You you do what I tell you to do, you'll you'll be good. You keep the job that you want so desperately, and you just got to follow this formula. that, That is the opposite of the counsel you ought to give. But help them imagine, what if the worst thing happened? Well, then you would still be a child of God. You'd still be loved by him eternally. You'd still have Christ as your savior. You'd still belong to the kingdom of God. And you know what? You still could fulfill your purpose for living just to please God and glorify him. you can do that in any job. Right? It doesn't matter how small or demeaning the world might think that the job is. The one who is holding everything together, the one who is in control of everything, the one who is infinitely good and holy, he says, here's the reason why you exist. And you can still do that no matter where you are, no matter what continent, no matter what culture, no matter what job no matter how insignificant you might think your job is, you can do what is most significant there, which is to please God. Eddie Arthur, the guy from Wycliffe that I quoted earlier, he says something at the end of his post that is important for this struggle. He says, my life, Time struggle with imposter syndrome is one expression of the same battle that we all face. Learning to take ourselves off the throne and to see that it really belongs to Jesus. Again, this is just another way for us to put ourselves on the throne. Instead of saying, oh no, that's actually an illusion. He belongs there and I need to believe that functionally. You can believe that in terms of my, what my creed is and i say yeah I, I believe that he's on the throne but functionally do you live that way you, do you live that way from day to day and when we think in these terms we're not putting christ on the throne he's already there right but we're not acting like he's there something else um biblical counselor amy baker has this book uh, about perfectionism called picture perfect and she says this, and I think this applies to our goal in life, no matter where we are, no matter what job we have. She says, truly humble people are not focused on how they look to others. They're concerned about how God looks to others. That's the difference, right? So, so we need to see ourselves in whatever job that we have, whatever line of work that you're in, you're an ambassador of Christ. You're there to represent God right? Uh, You're an image bearer of God, right? You're you're meant to reflect God. And so here's something that we all need to remember. Um, You were created, as we like to say at our church, to show the world what God is like. Wherever you are, whatever work you're doing, you're created to show the world what God is like. As you reflect the image that he has stamped you with through faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a couple more verses and we'll be done. Look with me at Luke 10. Luke 10. Starting in verse 17, we'll just get this paragraph. We need to help people who struggle with an imposter perspective to have the right priorities and what they value. Okay? So listen to this. The 72 returned with joy right? So they, they were sent out to do mission work by Christ. And they returned They they were saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He gave them power to cast out demons and in verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But listen to this. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now here's the important part. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He gave them power to to have, uh, you know, this ability to cast out demons, to have authority over them, his authority. And they're excited about that. He says, no, here's where you need to prioritize your excitement. Prioritize your rejoicing in the fact that you are written in heaven. You're written in the book, right? You belong to him. And so that's true of the person who is an imposter perspective struggler. We aren't promised, by the way, here, I'll give you, there you go. But we, we aren't promised that we'll be able to keep the job that we love so much. But we are promised that that if we will labor in the Lord, right, do the Lord's work, right, then our labor will not be in vain. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Even write that one down. Not promised that you'll keep the job that you have so you can do the the, the work that you want to do and have the occupation you want, but you are promised that when you will labor in the Lord, right, in his name, according to his word, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He won't waste it. In other words, it will be useful. He will take it and he'll use it in his plan for his glory. Finally, we can turn to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Remember, this is uh, the part of 2 Corinthians where Paul has prayed for The thorn in the flesh to be removed. Three times he prayed. Three times. But, verse 9, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We need to realize that we are finite. We we do lack. We we don't have all the skills that we wish that we had. That's true. We're weak. All of us are weak. When we detect weakness in ourselves, our next move should not be to try and prove to ourselves that we're not weak. This is what we want to do. Rather, we should let our weaknesses drive us to the sufficient grace of Christ. I'm weak. I need to cast myself upon his grace so that his power will come and rest upon me in my weakness. And who will be seen as the strong one? Not me. He'll be seen as the strong one. He'll be shown to be the glorious one who gave me what I needed to do what he wanted me to do. So I'll get the help to obey him and he'll get the credit. I was talking to my co-pastor today about this lecture and As I was telling him about this aspect of weakness that we wanted to discuss tonight, he said this, he said, we automatically attribute value to self-sufficiency. That's the lie. But we ought to be saying, no, no, the value is in Christ's sufficiency for me. And then throw myself on his sufficiency so I'll be held up. Last week I was at the ACBC national conference in Memphis with my wife and uh, Johnny Erickson Tata gave a message and it was uh, stirring as you can imagine. And I was reminded again as she was talking and she was talking about human dignity and uh, in, in view of disability. And because we're made in God's image and because um, he has stamped us with that image and he's created us in the way that he's created us And she was saying she doesn't need to have um, all the abilities that other people have to have value and dignity. But it's all about God. It's not about us, right? All of the value comes from what he has done for us and how he has made us and how he has lavished us with his grace. And so we all need to remember that. Everybody's weak, but he's not. And we need to plead with him in our weakness that he would come and give us his strength, so that we're trusting in him and not in our ability to pull ourselves up and then boast in ourselves and think of ourselves as sufficient because he's already demonstrated he's sufficient for us. Let's pray. Father God, give us what we need to take this and apply it to ourselves because I think there there are at least remnants of this in each of us, Lord God, because we, we do deal with pride. We do deal with fear. And Lord, maybe it has to do with our identity or uh, in what we want to be able to say about ourselves and where we look for significance. So help us to be redirected by the power of your Holy Spirit according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.